Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. So, Mani Naputni, it's so good to see you all here. And I would like to begin by acknowledging Agza Ghana Yutunga Uindi. Agza stands on Ghana land. So, my name is Elle Freak, and I'm the Associate Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And it's also my great privilege to be the curator of this exhibition, Dushan and Voita Marek, Surrealists at Sea. And so we're very lucky tonight to be joined by Voita Marek's children, Olga Senki and Ivan Marek. And I have been, again, very fortunate through the process of putting this exhibition together to have Ivan and Olga at hand. We've spent a lot of time talking to each other, having cups of tea, um, Zoom conversations during COVID lockdowns. And um, it's been really enlightening as a curator to have those kind of personal insights and perspectives to inform my understanding of Dushan and Voyager's work. So tonight we're really opening up what would normally be a private conversation to include all of you. There will be a few moments for questions at the very end of the conversation, but really tonight I'm just thrilled to hear directly from Olga and Ivan, and um, we're going to see where we end up. We are not coming with prepared questions, which I think is always the best way. <laughs> So for those of you who are not familiar with the exhibition, I'll just introduce it a little bit before I will ask some questions um, to Olga and Ivan. So this is a large exhibition, which you probably have already noticed. We have drawn together over 200 works from public and private collections across the country. And this really is the largest joint exhibition of the brothers' work ever to be staged. It is actually their first joint exhibition since 1949. So over 70 years since we've seen their work side by side in this way. And that exhibition in 1949 we love talking about because it was received with quite a mixed response from Australian audiences. So it was held just next door at Adelaide University and the brothers had just arrived in Australia only a few months earlier. Dushan and Voyta came to Australia from Czechoslovakia in late 1948. They held their joint exhibition in 1949, and the exhibition was received with praise, with puzzlement. Another exhibition of theirs at the time was met with censorship. Dushan's works were even removed from display in 1949, and the artists really challenged their audiences, and I think they're continuing to challenge audiences now, which is why their work still feels so fresh and relevant, certainly, to our time. So, I was interested in the way in which Dushan and Voyta, of course, came to Australia as young men, already dedicated to modern art. So they arrived, Voyta was 29, Dushan was 22, and they had already really lived quite a life in Prague and in Northern Bohemia. Their education was very richly informed by the ideas of surrealism. Voyta even had a four-year apprenticeship in silversmithing. So they arrived as practicing artists, very dedicated to their art. Dushan had even described himself as a surrealist at the age of 14. So you can just imagine what their personality may have been like at that time. So I'm interested in starting right there at the beginning, thinking about Dushan and Voyta as young children in Czechoslovakia. And I wonder, Olga and Ivan, what do you know about those early years? Well, the story that we used to like the most was, I think they were quite poor 
even though their father in particular was uh, obviously, he seemed to be a very highly educated person. He was musically and he read philosophy and, you know, read literature. He was also incredibly stern, so that it's probably not a surprise that every son left fairly as soon as they could. And relatives told us that they remember hearing Grandma calling out, uh, you know, into the forest, boys, boys, you know, hurry home, Dad's coming home. And they had to be lined up by the door and say, welcome home, Father, from work. So they had a fairly stern upbringing. But both parents worked. Their father worked for the railways in some administrative position. And then their mother took in washing. So she, you know, they really weren't, they were struggling. And I guess because she was working, the, the age difference, so Dad was, his, the next brother was five years younger, a middle brother, and then Dushan was seven years younger, so they were tasked with basically looking after their little brother. The mother didn't have much time for them. And one of their, the things that they always loved telling us was how they taught him all the wrong words so they were kind of responsible for getting his vocabulary organised. Dushan's? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he was sort of surreal, you know, had that surrealist streak right from the start because apparently when he went to school, the teachers were really, weren't sure what to do with him because, you know, he had, he, a goat was a train and, you know, he had all the, the wrong words. <laughs> and I remember you telling me that he would later, when you were young children, Dusham would give you the same mixed messages around, that's a tram, but it's not a tram, it's a train or... I think he did that to you more. That yes. Was to you, yes. Ivan. Yeah. I had a, a lovely relationship, I think, with Dushan, probably because I was the only small boy in the family. And we used to have nonsensical conversations that we both thought were very funny. And it would be very natural for a child, I guess, to think them funny. But I think Dushan um, indulged in that as well. And he's, he, he was always entertaining with me, I think. I think. With other people, he had more philosophical and, and complex conversations. But just one small thing, I remember we went to visit him in Tasmania and with our two eldest daughters uh, to stay there for a while in Margate when he was there painting and I think he was at that time working at the art school as well. And so he collected, or he, he and Helena came to the airport and were going to show us the way to Margate because we hadn't been to Tasmania before. And at every intersection, he put on the opposite indicator just to <laughs> confuse me a bit. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I always hear new stories. I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> I, I did. I was had the privilege of going through, of course, the archive that you have both kept, and as well as Sherry Donaldson, who's done her PhD on Dushan Marik. She's also kept this rich archive. And I remember reading um, a little note that Dushan had written saying, I never really had to go to school. Somehow I got away with that. And so I think you've described him before to me as kind of the chosen one of the children. He was kind of considered to be quite special. And while Voita, as the older brother, did have the expectation of having to go to school and get an education, Dushan kind of got away with it. Yeah, and I think maybe that relationship continued where Voisha seemed to me to be perhaps a little bit more reserved or modest in the way that he would talk about his art and, and speak to the public. Why Dushan had this kind of cheeky nature where he would speak to the public quite directly. So 
Prague was incredibly important to Dushan and Voita. I think that's fair to say. They both had a really rich experience there. They were linked to the Czech avant-garde. They were both, at different times, studying at the Umprums, so the Academy of Arts, Architecture and Design there, where many Czech surrealists had studied before them. So they had this really important, I think, two years in particular time there of freedom. But of course, then there was the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia. And very quickly, Dušan and Vojta decided to flee their homeland and to look for a new life. It just so happened to be that that life would come in Australia. Did Dušan and Vojta ever speak to you about that decision and how? what do you know of that decision and then, of course, their long journey here to Australia? Well, we, I think as far as the decision goes, we probably know more from the fact that my mother wrote quite a lot about her relationship and their travels, etc. So it really, really was prompted, I think, by the, the fact, this was the story, that uh, if you wanted to continue practising as an artist, you had to sign up for this um, sort of a communist register of artists. And... I mean, knowing their personalities, it makes complete sense that they, there's no way they would have acquiesced to that sort of thing. So that was the real trigger, I think, uh, of uh, they wouldn't be able to pursue the, the sort of art that they wanted to. And Dad kept in touch with a couple of his colleagues from art school, and then we did visit them much, much later, and they they were making sort of more realist Soviet-based, sort of Soviet-inspired sculptures. I mean, they were quite successful, but had to toe the line. Yeah, I, um, I remember reading again a little passage that Dushan had written at some point, and he said that if they were to stay, he would have to be making and exhibiting his art in his bedroom, and that's no life for, you know, an artist. It seemed to be quite an obvious decision that they made. So I also want to mention, of course, Vera, who is... Olga and Ivan's mother. And Vera, you may have seen her depicted in a few paintings already in the very first gallery when you come down the stairs. So Vera and Voita seem to have had such a lovely relationship, describing each other as, of course, the loves of their life. And during that long sea journey, they unfortunately had to come to Australia on separate ships. So Vera was coming over on an earlier ship and arrived much earlier than Voiter and Dushan, whose ship had many, many engine troubles and delays. But again, such a privilege of mine was going through their voyage notebooks and having them translated from Czech to English. And um, there's this beautiful passage that Voiter wrote for Vera, and he said, I'm decanting the infinite sea with a spoon so as to be closer to you. And he would write to her frequently. His journal is full of his longing to be reunited with Vera. And, um, of course, Voiter and Vera would marry in Adelaide the year after they arrived and had two beautiful children. <laughs> and, yeah, I wonder if you could share with us what their relationship was like. And maybe just even if it was easier, that's quite hard. I don't know what I would say about my parents. Um, but, yeah. But I, think, I think we missed the, the heyday. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, oh, look, I think they had a very, a, a very close relationship still. Probably they really... I think Helen and Dushan managed to maintain that kind of you know, youthful, sort of semi-irresponsible way of life because they didn't have children, they didn't have those 
well, not burdens, but <laughs> those sort of financial requirements. Whereas I think because Dad wanted to pursue his art and really uh, was never willing to compromise, I think the financial, there, were, there was a lot of financial stress that we remember. And I think, uh, I know you're going to talk about Kangaroo Island later, but one of the reasons I think they always thought that was such a happy time was also there was like nothing to worry about financially. So, you know, that I, th makes I think... a lot it, of sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it did. It seems like Vera and Helena, so Dushan also married his wife, Helena, soon after arriving in Adelaide. They actually met on board the SS Charlton Sovereign. And another little quote that I love is Helena saying to, again, Sherry Donaldson, that they spent the trip reciting poetry into the sea spray of the bow of the ship. Again, such romance and poetry. I just look at the positives, obviously. <laughs> but... Dushan and Voita both really depended on their wives. Vera and Helena, from what I can see, were kind of the money makers, I think it's fair to say. They were the bookkeepers. And even after Dushan and Voita passed away, it was really Vera and Helena who um, cared for the, their legacy and their archive. Yeah. yeah, yes. I mean, I think that said, when we were, especially with Dad, I think both he and Dushan had a very keen sense of their own worth. Because even in the, the... I mean, Dad really kept all the newspaper cuttings and all the reviews, and it's his writing that's dating them. So I think he, he was the one who put it together. The, the wives, the widows then kind of maintained, you know, got, right. looked after what was there. But they were very meticulous about keeping records. Do you, do you think, yes, you know, they, yeah. they didn't doubt their own talent? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's an and important I note, yeah. Surprisingly, from from looking at materials and um, other things for the exhibition, I was surprised at how ambitious and determined they were. It, 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 there was, and I guess that that speaks to why they they left the Czech Republic as well as their independence. There was no thought that they would do anything other than be artists and express themselves. And I guess, I guess as a child, you just see your parents doing whatever they're doing. You think that's kind of normal, but yeah, maybe a bit weird, but kind of, you know, that's just what they did. But, but to reflect on it, the determination and the drive to continue as, art, as artists with those financial challenges and I think possibly Dushan was more challenged by the criticism of their first exhibition and of his work, I think he found that very, I don't know quite what the word is, but um, yes, it, I think it hurt him more than, than Dad, but I think Dad probably was moving towards that spiritual religious direction, yeah, I don't know what else to say there, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I, th I, I, I think that's actually probably a good chance to actually talk about how Voyager was religious and increasingly so, from what I can tell. I was fascinated to learn that the brothers didn't grow up with a family that was necessarily religious and in fact their father decided to abandon religion after hearing about the Pope blessing guns during the First World War. So they seemed to really be encouraged to find their own or to have their own spiritual journey and often that was kind of experienced through nature even during those early years. But it seems like Voita, even in Prague, I remember him you mentioning that he heard the Lord's Prayer and was very inspired by that. And then he studied the science of comparative religions in Prague. And then even his notebook during their journey to Australia makes many biblical references. 
in addition to talking about Vera. And um, then, of course, you spent an incredible time living in Kangaroo Island um, as lighthouse keepers. And then it was really from after that moment that Voiter decided to dedicate himself to expressing his faith and became a leading ecclesiastical artist and sculptor. But could we talk about that pivotal experience in Kangaroo Island? Because at this point, you're both born. I think, Olga, you're about five. And Ivan, you have your, your third birthday within a few months of arriving in Kangaroo Island. So Voiter and Vera decided to join the Australian Lighthouse Service and to leave Adelaide and have that life for, for about two years. Almost three. Almost three. So what do you remember of that experience as young children um, living at three different lighthouse stations? Must have been amazing. I think, you re I think Olga remembers more than I do. <laughs> oh, I remember a little bit more. Okay, I think it was a time of incredible freedom. I mean, our parents were reasonably unfussed uh, and let us kind of, uh, not roam, but... We had a lot of freedom. They, they weren't the sort of the very hovering parents by, by any means. So I think what we found was really quite, quite exciting life, quite basic after, you know, having lived in the city. It was kerosene lamps and a fortnightly delivery of food. People made their own soap there. You know, it was kind of very much a pioneering thing, which mum really embraced. And I think... Uh, Dad really enjoyed kind of the whole exploring aspect of it because they, especially on Cape Cootie, there was a fairly flick. The head lighthouse keeper was in a position to make or break, I think, the lives of his subordinates. There were two other lighthouse keepers and this particular Mr Lethby was quite a bit older and very experienced and kind of knew exactly what had to be done and how much, whereas some other headlight housekeepers it was an opportunity for them to bully people into polishing brass fixtures that nobody ever saw so I think that they, there was a lot of free time during the day so it was really dad used to love taking us for walks looking at snakes and caves and you know it was it was it was really every day was an, an adventure mm -hmm. so I think we were very fortunate to experience that yeah. and and I think dad really in their childhood I think they spent most weekends with the family in the forest they would go for walks I think foraging for mushrooms but also it was it was I think their father giving them almost a, a botanic education um, and I think dad was fascinated by the Australian fauna and flora and at those times I guess with no other very few people at Cape de Coudie and that whole National Park, I think the opportunity to, to, to come across, especially the kangaroos and, and echidnas, we've got a lovely photo of Dad, I think, when he came back, when he went back probably 20 or 30 years later with Mum, and he's just got the most joyful look on his face, and he's got a pair of leather gloves on, and he's holding an echidna that they would have found somewhere. And, um, and I, I remember possibly from afterwards, but Mum knitted Dad a great big, a huge jumper that would have been almost like a dress, and it was an olive green and brown. And I remember Dad saying that when he wore that jumper, he would be kind of virtually invisible in the scrub. And, you know, he could go almost right up to the kangaroos. And so I think that and the, the, 
the, the immersion in nature and also in just the phenomenal um, closeness to the ocean and quite the, the, the you know, the, the southern ocean coming from the, the South Pole virtually, was very, it was kind of a spiritual experience for Dad. I can remember being terrified at the top of the lighthouse, which is virtually out on the, on the, the point at Cape Nakuti, because there was a hole in the floor where the trapdoor was, where you could go in and out, and I just remember, you know, that, that seemed like a very precarious spot to be. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we were always encouraged to go and look over the cliff edge and climb to the top of the lighthouse. <laughs> and he never treated... I must say, I'm just thinking you saying that we were never treated as children. I mean, he always sort of spoke to us as, you know... His equals when it came to looking at nature because he came home one day really excited and said to mum, like, quick, we all have to go now and see what the seals are doing. And they were actually, it was mating time, so there was this fight to the death between two bull seals, which was really grisly and we were really upset. <laughs> but dad thought it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that brings me to their decision to leave Kangaroo Island because, um, in Vera's words, they felt like you needed a more conventional education. <laughs> so they decided to leave in 1958 and then come, they came back to Adelaide. And this is the moment where Voiter um, made his first ecclesiastical work on commission. And then he entered really quite a prolific period during the 60s and 70s of making hundreds of commissions for churches, schools and individuals across the country. So we've been able to determine that he made work for every state and territory in Australia. Quite remarkable. And um, during the process of putting this exhibition together, which has been maybe just under two years of work together, Olga and Ivan along with a few of our volunteers, including Kate Jordan-Moore and Ralph Boddy, have been travelling to as many churches and schools as possible to document the works that Voiter made. And they have created an amazing website, voitermarick.com, and you can see some of that work being documented, and it's really, yeah, quite amazing to see just how prolific um, Voiter was. I think that's what a lot of people have taken away from this exhibition, that both brothers were just unwavering in their commitment to their art and we're tracing six decades of art making in this exhibition. So what do you remember of, the, of the, those decades, the 60s and the 70s, of Voiter making this kind of work? I know that you at times were even helping him with some of the larger commissions. Just to fill in, I don't know if this is true, but I've been told that I was a bit unteachable on Kangal Island. Olga was much more compliant and did the, did the correspondence lessons, so that could be one of the reasons they had to come back to the mainland. I don't remember that. But, but I do remember how constant Dad's work was, and, and he loved doing it. He, at various times, he had people, a couple of employees, uh, um, Michael Potosky, whom we visited, uh, who's quite elderly now, but he has extremely fond memories. And a funny thing was that I think it's the European, but possibly mostly the Czech culture, that Michael Potosky worked for Dad for maybe around, on and off, for probably 10 years, and every day they would greet themselves as Mr. Marek and Mr. Potosky. Would you like a coffee, Mr. Potosky? And, but I was... And reflecting now, I'm 
amazed at the 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 variety of media that Dad felt so comfortable with, and also the 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 skill and beauty he could bring out of different material. I think one of his early pieces was uh, as Saint Joseph and Christ Jesus as a boy out of um, limestone. I think it was Wakery limestone, oh. and that was quite solid. That's that's still on at near Marion, but. During the, the the search for Dad's work, there's there's a, just a magnificent, beautiful uh, figure of Mary at Calvary Hospital, just sitting outside one of the the I think there's a church hall there, which I hadn't seen before. But so yet just his ability in so many media, and certainly the the pieces next door of of Dad's wrought iron work are some of the the most beautiful, elegant ones there are. And seeing the works in an exhibition where they're optimally displayed, um, to me, just kind of was a bit of an eye-opener compared to seeing the works, you know, often in churches or in locations where, where they're in a functional space, where their, their elegance is not as obvious as um, in the exhibition. Yeah, I think um, there. you're right. He experimented with so many different techniques and media and actually putting, having to come up with what to put in the show was really challenging. And um, I did decide to focus on, on those works that you've just mentioned, Ivan, the iron rod and wire sculptures in particular, because I felt like they had such a strong relationship with Voiter's drawings, but also I just loved the experimentation that you can see there and how he was using quite um, unconventional materials. So Voiter started working on those after working in an Adelaide factory that was making garden gates and shopping trolleys. And he said he started experimenting with that material and got what he'd been after for many years and that for him the purity of line could express the purity of his faith. So for me, they are some of his, his best works. So, yeah, go I, on. I was just going to add to that because when Ivan was saying how well displayed and how you can really appreciate the line work, I, I now wonder whether a lot of the church work was um, co beaten copper so it's quite solid and enamel for colour. A lot of the time it was the 60s so red brick interiors were very you know the going thing sort of raw brick other rather than plastered walls whether maybe that move to these more chunky colourful works was also prompted by you know the display which was you know sometimes pretty solid and, and would clash a lot with some of the delicate wire works. Yeah, I mean, most likely it seems yeah. like Voiter really responded to each individual space. And yes, yeah. He loved working with the architects and spoke a lot about the importance of the artist and architect coming together. And he was so fortunate to be there at the right time because so many churches were being built, so many, you know, Catholic migrants and immigrants were coming to Australia and there were many new churches that needed to be built. And there was also Vatican II, which changed the whole design of the church layout, where the priest was no longer having their back to the congregation but turning around. So Voiter was really able to respond to all of those needs and as a modern artist came up with these incredibly, yeah, elegant and modern and experimental ideas. 
So we might be heading to the end of the talk, but I do want to mention that Olga, which I'm sure many of you are aware, is a practicing artist herself, and we do have Olga's work on display upstairs in the atrium. And I did want to take this opportunity to ask Olga specifically how maybe your own practice has been influenced by your father's work, and if not directly by Wojta's work, but how has it been influenced by that upbringing um, with a Czech father and mother being in a bilingual household and also a very religious household? I suppose in the works that are actually on display now, the two things do come together. Mum was a, a translator, so she was already translating from English to Czech for a magazine, for a um, publishing house in Prague. So she had a really keen sense of the difference and the subtle differences between languages, so she really enjoyed that. And Dad, on the other hand, really enjoyed the, the absurdity of a, a new language. I think I might have mentioned he he just loved just wordplay. You know, he he never hear the word pioneer without going ha ha pie on ear. So it was kind of the sort of the pictorial kind of approach to language. So I think what that just that aspect sort of made made both the power and the absurdity of language sort of obvious. Uh, and then we did do a lot of praying. So <laughs> that came from a very strong Catholic background and a lot, a lot, lot of the prayers were repeated prayers, so almost like incantations, like the rosary is something that goes on for quite a long time with repeated prayers. So I think that, and it was supposed to have power to do, you know, lots of things. You could have an intention that you'd pray for and so we used to pray for things like that the communists would leave Czechoslovakia and sometimes it would be for the you know health of the grandparents and we used to even pray for dad to get commissions and that even that when he got them that he'd feel like doing them because I think some of them <laughs> um, so you know we had various um so uh, you know that sort of that belief in the power of prayer I guess was something that I tended to react against probably, but still it's just very interesting and I think I've used text quite a bit in my prints and probably I think from those two sort of almost opposite points of view as far as language is concerned. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Olga's work, I'm sure many of you have already seen it, but if you haven't, please go upstairs. But you can see how you're playing um, constantly with image and text and also with the way that language can be translated and the way language is not fixed but can shift in meaning. Yeah. So really, yeah, wonderful work upstairs. And actually, now that you've mentioned it, even the processes of kind of repetition and those devices of dualisms and turning things, you know, in reverse. You can see that in Dushan and Voiter's work and in your work. Mm. So, yeah, it's even closer than what I thought. <laughs> and Ivan, so that you're not left out as well. <laughs> um, perhaps we could end by, um, if you were influenced by Voiter, because I know you gravitated towards art and you became an art teacher, so you must have been. Yes. Yes, I, I, I had, a, um, I guess, a very interesting and never boring life as an art teacher um, and I suppose that was not I suppose it was it was a direct flow on from the fact that that uh, we were such an artistic household and I know I think <laughs> I think it's clear <laughs> I think we will end it there but I do want to take the opportunity to just publicly thank 
both of you and your entire family for your generosity with the gallery and your assistance, especially my part in this project and to have the family's trust and yeah, openness really has made it such a rich project to work on and I'm yeah, just so grateful. So we will have time for questions, but I think if we can all just thank Olga and Ivan. So are there any questions? I'll just repeat the question, and it's a really good one that I should have covered, of really asking how Dushan and Voysha work together and did they ever really collaborate together? I might just point out that from what you've told me, Dushan and Voysha were incredibly supportive of each other and I keep waiting, you know, for you to tell me some sort of argument that they had or <laughs> some, you know, bitterness behind something that's happened. But actually it seems like Dushan and Voyager were just, yeah, incredibly loving and supportive. I think as artists, um, maybe they saw in each other the determination um, and really, yeah, from what you've told me, but this is your chance to tell me otherwise, <laughs> they seem you to be You never had any sense of connected. competition. I think, especially as Dad became, sort of moved more into the ecclesiastical, uh, I think it was really just uh, purely supportive and non-competitive. And was there a collaboration? Yes, yeah. Um, I know that um, Dushan did help Dad at times in the workshop, but it was probably more when Dad had a deadline and he often did work um, very much to deadlines, um, you know, day and night towards the end of when a commission was due. And the Holy... And I forget what the film was for, but... Um, Dushan did make a 16mm film of Dad's work in various churches, which was, um, yeah, which I think is here on display. I don't think it actually was for anything in particular. I think he just actually wanted to do it for him. Yeah. yeah. And, and there was, as Olga said, I don't remember any, that there was encouragement for both they would encourage each other, but also it probably was the fact that they moved in such a different directions that there was never any sort of um, clash in the, in, in the themes and the media they were using. Um, but I would like to say one more thing just to you and, and to Earl, how grateful we, we are that really Dad's and Dushan's work has been honoured in this way. I guess it's something Olga and I have felt it certainly got us motivated and moving on creating the website of Dad's ecclesiastic work because that was very accessible and also Mum had a wish. Dad didn't sign any of his work. She had a wish that we get a little plaque in each of the locations that would identify his work. And we have found that in some locations it's uh, people don't know who, who made the work. But, but really what I'm saying is how grateful and honoured we are that that Dad's and Dushan's work have been displayed like this, not only to justify, but really for us to see and appreciate it ourselves. I think Olga and I were both blown away when we walked into the exhibition. Things like Dad's drawings, which I probably appreciate more now than I ever have. They, you know, they were in a box. In, yeah. So, so, yeah, I would just like to offer our gratitude to the gallery and, El and all the people involved.
Yeah, there's one more question. Yeah, so the question is, um, did Boisha and Dushan return to their homeland? That was one of the questions. <laughs> they both had the opportunity in the, I think, late 70s. Mum actually, my mother um, did go back and was able to see her mother in the, late, in the mid 60s. But um, actually Dad and Dushan were too, uh, they, they didn't think they might be let out again. So they didn't go. Um, but they both did reconnect with what was left of their families. And actually the Marrick brothers, their parents actually did come to Australia so that, so in, in the 60s. And the other thing was the spiritual religious thing. I think um, the religious thing kind of with Dad's work, looking at the, the drawings here, there's kind of a spiritual slash religious aspect to the very early work already. So I think it was latent there. Um, but it did the sort of the, the I was going to say religiosity, but the religious aspect did really become kind of the dominant force um, probably from the 60s on. I think one of my favourite quotes um, by Voiter was when he described surrealism as something almost physical that could turn the artist inside out. And I just feel like even though I'm not religious, that his expression of his faith was also a kind of way of kind of tapping that, the intangible and expressing, um, yeah, those intangible depths of, of your faith and of spirituality. So for me, actually, the leap between surrealism and his ecclesiastical art is not that great. And um, he's certainly not the first artist to be interested in surrealism and to also express his faith in his art. Um, you know, Dali is such a good example of, of a surrealist that did that. Um, yeah. So perhaps we'll leave it there, but thank you all for joining us and thank you, Olga and Ivan. Thank you.